Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Welcome to the Fee-for-Service Dentist Podcast, Dr. Sonny Spear, with our special guest, Dr. Bob Marcus. Dr. Bob is a good friend of Nicole Vane. He is a currently a consultant who works in the field and works with just a handful of dentists, helps them in the fee-for-service world getting out of insurance or at least getting into quality first. He talks about systems and how important they are and how they help build your practice goals how do you get there and what do you do and ultimately delivering great quality because your patients deserve it spend the time be the doctor and be the leader and again our good friends at kettenbach are our sponsor kettenbach dental sponsors of fee-for-service dentist podcast kettenbach their new product semcore it's great for every cementation protocol. It's a hydrophilic adhesive cement as well as a hydrophobic core buildup material. Check it out. Vesalis Semcore. Kettenbach USA at kettenbach-dent.us or call 877-532-2123. They have a rep in your area and they can help you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the fee-for-service podcast with Dr. Bob Marcus. My name is Drew Burns, and I'm a part of a small group of dentists who believe something crazy. We believe that the standard of care is just not good enough. We demand the best of ourselves and the best for our patients. We believe that the best way, no, the only way to practice dentistry is on our own terms. If you ask the dental consultants or the corporate CEOs, they tell you that what we're doing isn't smart that fee-for-service dentistry is dead, and that the golden age of dentistry is over. Yet, while others focus on profits first, we focus on the patient first. And yet, our offices are some of the most profitable in the entire country because we invest in ourselves and we are doing things right. It's our name on the door, and it's our reputation on the line. My name is Drew Burns, and I am a fee-for-service dentist. This is the Fee-for-Service Dentist Podcast, and these are our stories. All right, welcome to the Fee-for-Service Podcast. We have a special guest, and you know how in practice you, you like referrals from patients? This is a referral from one of our favorite guests from Nicole Vane. She has recommended Dr. Bob Marcus. Let me give you a little background on Dr. Marcus, and... And we'll get started. He's got a wealth of knowledge. This, to me, hopefully, is one of a series of, of, of podcasts that we'll be able to do with him, if I can twist his arm a little bit. Okay, Bob graduated from the University of Connecticut Dental School in 1993, did a GPR at the VAMC in La Jolla, California. He had a very successful cosmetic family dental practice in the San Diego County area and then retired voluntarily from clinical dentistry in 2019. He is a, uh, he's very busy. He focuses on coaching, dental study clubs, and CEREC training. And on his coaching, he's worked with practices all over the country. He focuses on the psychology of patient interactions and treatment planning and the presentation process. He is also an active CEREC doctor's mentor and a number of other things. He's the founder, this is pretty cool, the founder of Kick Your Apps, an app company for dentists. Their flagship app, DDSGP, has over 15,000 copies sold in 65 countries. The app provides a quick and easy way for dentists to show their patient dental conditions and treatment options. And please welcome to the show, Dr. Bob Marcus. Bob, how you doing, man? Fantastic. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. Fantastic. We have, uh, I can't say we've been planning this a long time, but Nicole and I have talked about it and it was really generous of you to offer your time and be able to do this and pretty excited about talking. Uh, let's get, let's let our listeners get to know you a little bit. Talk about your genesis in dentistry. Where'd it come from? 
if you're asking me why I became a dentist, people ask that all the time. I really have no idea. I think it was, I observed my orthodontist when I was a kid, Dr. Beeman, and he seemed like he was a pretty happy guy. He had a bunch of happy (laughs) assistants there. I don't know what they said about him in the back room, but they seemed like they were doing a good job and kind of appealed to me. Never had any other dental or health people in my family. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So it was, I was the first one and kind of decided I'm going to do it and then started doing it. And, you know, once the ball gets rolling, okay, I guess I'm going to do this. And then you just, just kind of keeps rolling downhill. And all of a sudden you're a dentist. Like, okay, now I did this. Now I got to figure this next part out. So I don't have a really good reason. I guess I could say the old cliche, like I like to help people. Or I thought maybe we were going to get paid real well. I don't know. I, I don't really know what I was thinking way back then, but it kind of worked out. Mm-hmm. But when you went into it, did you feel like I had you had a little more science, um, like proclivity to science? Or did you have a little more? I mean, you're definitely a people person, but did you feel that? The future of fee-for-service dentistry is based in membership patients. If you need help starting your membership plan, or if your plan is too big for your team to manage, visit dentalmembershipdirect.com to set up your free membership growth solution demo with our team. Uh, communication, did you have any business background, the family, what was some of the? Nope, no business background. My father owned a little tiny antique shop in Stratford, Connecticut, where he essentially sold like old clocks and furniture and stuff like that. And my mother was a secretary at an insurance company. So I didn't really have any background in, in anything. Uh-huh. I think that I learned the hard way that communicating with people and being able to communicate properly is the key to everything. I don't care, I don't care what job you're in. And I think I probably learned that in college. I went to a small college in Pennsylvania called Lafayette College. It had about two thousand. Yeah, yeah. Yep. In, in Eastern East Pennsylvania, home, Larry and Jerry I, Holmes, baby. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> And so, and I, and I know you love that because you even named your son after me, which I thought was kind of cool. <laughs> but I, I liked the small college thing because it takes somebody, I was kind of, kind of almost shy and nerdy and it gives you a place to be. And now you have a voice because the class is only 15 people and everybody starts to learn how to speak and communicate. And I think that's where I got my start. Although I probably didn't know it at the time. I think it's where I got my start. And then I went to UConn and we only had, I think like 45 people in our dental school class. And so that was reasonably small too. And so you kept going, you learned that I've got to communicate here. Even to this day, every Friday morning, I go to Toastmasters, Toastmasters here in San Diego and kind of an irreverent, you know, raucous bunch of guys, but we learn how to speak. And when we do a formal speech, which I actually have one coming up this Friday, and then we evaluate each other. We're pretty harsh. And the way you said that was wrong. You, you were too fast. You didn't pause, whatever it is. And we continue to learn how to speak. And I think that's what leads to the, I think the way, I think who says it, where you say it, what you say, I think all these things matter so much in the dental office. And I think we as dentists kind of have this, well, I'm too busy. I got to go drill something. And we forget about the communication part of being a dentist. And then it leads us down the road to becoming what I call a composite dentist, which is I'm just going to drill and fill all day long. And I'm going to do, I'm going to be McDonald's. I'm going to increase my quantity to make more money as opposed to the quality of each case. And to to me, so I guess it goes back to that. When I think about it, I at least became less nerdy and more confident in myself at such a small school. Okay. So you did your GPR at the VA. Yeah. San Diego or La Jolla, which right. is a beautiful area. My buddy was in the, uh, he was in the Navy out there as well. I went to visit him. It was great. Uh, talk about what your thoughts were now as a resident. Were you thinking, oh, I'm going to go out. I'm going to start my own practice. I'm going to go in with, so what, what were your, what were your career steps next? So when I was at the GPR, which is VA GPRs, by the way, are fantastic because you don't have to chase people around for money. Right. So you, everything's kind of, paid for or, or treatment so really plan acceptance. do whatever you want to do right you're over the pe- lot- treatment plan acceptance it's pretty easy right case acceptance is not a thing and, and most of these veterans are so appreciative of what they're getting you get to know some really cool people with amazing stories so 
highly recommended if you have dental students that listen to your podcast and you're considering where to do your, your, your GPR, look at a VA. Anyway, so there were two other residents in the VA residency with me. It's three of us, myself, uh, Dr. Uh, Pretty Shaw and, and uh, um, Dr. Brian Shu. Brian Shu actually is the editor of the San Diego County something or other, and he, he's kind of a big San Diego County dentist. Dr. Shaw wound up in Atlanta, but we always talked about after we finish the residency, let's start a practice. Okay. The two of us. And so we did. We finished the residency and we purchased a practice that was owned by a woman who was getting ready. She didn't like it. She had set up a little three-op office and hated it. And she was getting out. She had, they had like 50 active patients. And most of them were like a neighbor and the husband's co-worker kind of thing. So we bought this practice for very little money. Shortly thereafter, uh, Dr. Shah, her husband was transferred and they moved away to Atlanta. So I bought out her half. Now here I am two years out of residency, a couple of years out of residency or whatever it is. And I got this practice and said, Hey, I got to build this thing and started building and building. Never left the area. We did move once to a little bigger facility, but kind of stayed put right where that practice started. And I, and I live a couple of miles away too. So what, what, was your, what was your vision for the practice then when you started? You know, it's a really good question. And I probably, in hindsight, if I were doing it now, I'd probably have a, you know, I'd look at my, my goals and my vision and my mission and define, you know, all my, my challenges and my, you know, look at it and think about it. I think it was dumb luck that led me to be successful. I, I think it was just a complete error. I just kind of acted like me, gained people's trust you know, when you have patients there and they come in and they act like they're your buddy, you know, they come in and you see them once every six months and they're like, Hey, doc, oh, hey, you've been fishing lately. And they they know you a little, I developed that a lot. And I really advocated on behalf of my patients. I was never a jerk to my patients. I respected when they said, no, thank you. Didn't beat them down. Hey, how about care credit? How about if I take your firstborn, just allowed them to, 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 feel like they were part of the decision making and i guess that led to success i can't really put my finger on what worked i would say it's probably systems if i had to choose one word it's systems i like systems and i'm not talking about having a, a script that somebody should read when they take a phone call if you need a script then you need a new person i'm talking about a system how do we all brainstorm on the way we should when a new patient walks in what are we going to do are we going to say hi okay that's part of the system we say hi now what's next? And if you as a dentist don't know what the 10 steps are, or whatever, you, however many steps of having a new patient come in, then you need to systematize that because you're just kind of winging it all day long and that creates stress. So I would say in hindsight, it's probably dumb luck, good communication and systems. I would also say it's being part of the community. I believed in living near the office I could literally walk to the office. It'd be a long walk, but a couple miles. And I participated in Rotary and this Toastmasters and other local things. I always coached the kids' soccer. I was a band dad for the marching band. And what happens is you get with a group of other band dads or soccer folk. And over time, they learn to like you. And then sort of you got a bunch of new patients. We never once put an ad out or worried about, well, these days wor worried about the equivalent of what today would be Google words. I wouldn't care about that. It's, it's just this kind of first, second, third degree warm referrals that worked out really well. So I would say if you're a dentist and you live a half an hour from your office, move, get closer and get involved in the community in some way or another that leads to so many new patients more than trying to have the best website. Okay. Now, when you started, you talked about, okay, we let's, let's go back to that for a second about vision and all that stuff. Now you went in, were you thinking though, Hey, we're going to focus on cosmetics. We're going to do a little bit of everything. What was, 
I mean, I get it. The relationships, I, I, I'm a firm believer in this. You like, like to me, you're preaching to the choir. It's all about the relationships that you're building and it's a slow process. What did you have? What, what, what were you thinking your practice was going to be? Was it going to be something that was like a multi-practice general practice, meaning you were going to do lots of different things and surgeries and, you know, and all that stuff, or were you going to focus on, you know, just basic restorative? What, what, what were your thoughts there? I think in the beginning, I wanted to do everything I could, but my focus became, I would say, families. Yep. Restorative mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. And I would say over time, cosmetics, as I developed a little more swagger and confidence, I also wanted to be somebody who had some cool stuff. I remember when what was it? Uh, digital x-rays first came out. We were one of the first on the block to have digital x-rays. And literally it was Kodak back then. And I remember Kodak had what they called a tech night. Yeah, ours and was chic. Yeah. yeah, same thing. And they set up a bunch of, you know, they brought a bunch of wine and cheese and shrimp and they put it out and they invited a bunch of dentists to come to my office and look at this amazing, you know, x-ray system. And then we had air abrasion when that was cool. Uh -huh. And we had that lasted for a few years. I remember buying a layer system. Yep. Yep. And we Self-contained self with the little, with the little, uh, right. And we compressor were in there and everything. Yeah. We were paperless from the, as early as we possibly could be no charts. Now that's normal. But back then that was, that was cool. You know, little things like that, that we could say could differentiate ourselves. And then in 04, when I became a Sarek doctor, I was right up my alley because I'm kind of a nerd for computers. So I got to play with computers and do dentistry at the same time. And that was really, I think that was life-changing, being able to do one-visit dentistry. Now everybody does one-visit dentistry, especially in San Diego, where we have a very strong Sarah community. I think probably a third of dentists in San Diego have a machine. But I don't have it because I was felt like I needed to to compete. I have it because it was awesome. And I think patients saw that and kind of latched onto that and we got a lot of referrals back then for people saying hey i don't, don't want to go twice for my crown now now in, in this area that wouldn't really differentiate you but back then it was it was cool in 2004 so i think a lot of those kind of being high tech having office look cool i don't want to you know wood paneling and old floors i wanted to look modern software computers everywhere we always had tvs on the ceilings Back when there were CR, you know, with the tubes, and they weighed a hundred pounds, we had we had a contractor come in and build the dang things in with huge studs. Now that now a TV weighs like ten pounds, and so oh you know, yeah, the uh, so, the frame know, itself stuff. weighed almost more than the TV. Yeah, yeah, the glass, and you had to be so careful with them. And people would be under and going, "Is that going to fall on me?" Now you could buy a big TV for three hundred bucks. If you don't have TVs in your operatory, you just go to Costco and buy a Walmart and buy a few TVs and have somebody put them up for you. Like little things like that made the difference, keeping people comfortable. I have never placed an implant. I've never done periosurgery. I've never done, I don't love seeing kids. I like kids, but not seeing kids in <laughs> dental office. That's why Pete Adonis should get paid really, or do and should get paid better. But I just stuck with the bread and butter dentistry and that worked real well. And, and I would say also relationships. Most people refer to specialists. I honestly believe in my career as a dentist, I get as many referrals from my specialists as I did to my specialists. I really believe that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, somebody goes to their oral surgeon, they're like, hey, you know, my dentist, you, you know, I don't love him anymore. And then the, the, the oral surgeon says, well, we can give you a list of three or four names. And the assistant whispers in the patient's ear, just go to just go to doctor whoever and yeah. that to me the developing those relationships i always told all of the people that worked at the specialist's office you know if you want to come to my office i'll do free zoom for you anytime we want you to have nice white teeth you work in dentistry no strings attached and over time they'd all become our patients and so the assistants and we had a lot of dentists become our patients which was kind of cool that was a always a weird feeling to have a dentist come to you as a patient mm -hmm. So I think that growth was just more organic than designed. Mm -hmm. So, so you find it's working though, but you, but it seems, it seems to me like you're, you're, uh, you were going to have like a high tech, high touch, right. 
and and high yeah, for personal, sure. you know. So it's I think that's a great way to practice. Now, I'm what chatty. Is, what, but what I, did you I do like about your 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 like you said until I got my confidence? Did you do anything in terms of CE to help you with your skills? Well, I've done uh, well. Yeah, I'd imagine so. We had a lot, you know, a very strong community here in San Diego, big dental community. So I've done an enormous amount of CE. I actually saw Roger uh, Levin one time. He's amazing. I saw Paul Homily several times. Of course, went through, you know, in more recent years, all the, you know, some of the spear curriculums and all the CEREC stuff. So, yes, a lot of CE to help develop. I think it's a lot more just getting at bats. You know, it's not like I went in and screwed stuff up. It's just I wasn't sure, like when I first got the CEREC machine, for example. I don't think I would have been sure on day one that I could do a veneer and make it look nice and fit nice and be the right color. But after I got enough tries and at bats at it, you just kind of develop your confidence. I, I think it's just repetitions for a young dentist to get out there and just, just do it. The patient will let you do it. I just think that it's, yeah, I think it's more at bats than CE. It's hard to teach somebody dentistry in CE courses as far as they're not going to hold your hand and hey, let me guide the drill for you. They might teach you new procedures or easier way or a better material. But I think just learning how to get your hand real steady, that and good tools. I was mm-hmm. the first guy in the block to have the air, to have uh, air driven hand, I mean, uh, electric driven hand pieces. And when I got them, I was like, wow, this is what a difference. I can make stuff smoother now and it's easier. So I think tech helps too, for sure. Okay. So I know you said, and I, I know you didn't want it to, you, you said it's not about me, but I, I do want to say if you feel comfortable, you want to talk about where you got your practice to number wise, like where you grew that practice to? Yeah, I know this really well because so. I mean, the, the bottom line answer is we were about $2 million in production um, annually. And uh, so, we had about doctor. 55. Solo doctor. doctor. I had two hygienists full-time, two assistants, and two and a half people at the front. One was part-time uh, doing some insurance claims and stuff like that. The um, practice was open four days a week, seven to five. So we had about... 36 clinical hours a week. Mm-hmm. But I know the numbers were well because I sold the practice in 2019, right before COVID. So I did not have to go through COVID as a dentist. So mm-hmm. that would have probably been pretty stressful. But where were you so, when you started? Just just give us some idea. Like in 2000, was it 2000? 2000, 2000, when started? I started the prat, well, when I started this, when I did a couple of things, I, I got into this practice in the, um, mid to late 90s okay 90 trying to remember 95 6 and we were i remember our goals i remember our goals back then were um about thirty thousand a month was our goal and then i remember when we hit our first uh, million dollar year and then so i'm very systematized i love spreadsheets this is the nerd in me so I have a spreadsheet. In fact, I still have it on my computer that goes all the way back. Basically, what I always wanted to do is I started out setting a monthly goal that was reasonable. I believe goals should not be some pie in the sky thing you're never going to achieve. That doesn't make sense. So I set a monthly goal. And that monthly goal wasn't based on a month. A monthly goal was based on a daily goal times the number of days worked in that month. Mm-hmm. So therefore, we didn't get these fluctuations for long and short months. And then what I did was I added, I wanted my practice to grow 0.5% a month forever. And so the goal would go up 0.5% each month and continue to rise. And I started tracking this probably around, I don't know, maybe 2004, 2005, and had it go up 0.5% until I reached this $2 million level, which I, that was, you know, that was, I considered to be, that's enough. And it's not that I didn't want to grow more, that you always want to grow more, but it was like, okay, I've reached this goal and let's just plateau here for a while. And, that, and that's what we did do for a few years prior to my selling it in early 2019. Okay. 
Now, I sold it, you know, invo- I sold it kind of involuntarily. You had said earlier I sold it voluntarily. I actually sold it involuntarily. I was working full-time. Everything's going great. You know, we were on autopilot. So word of caution to dentists out there, always have a backup plan. So um, we were doing fine. And I remember that I was with my wife. We were visiting friends in Portland. And I suddenly had this eye issue where my eye, my right eye started to hurt. And I figured I just scratched it or something got in there and kept hurting and hurting. We finally got back and my vision was blurry. And I went to the doctor and then that doctor sent me to another doctor. And then over time, we developed a diagnosis called retrobulbar optic neuritis, which is a way of saying something's wrong with the optic nerve, idiopathic which of course is our way of saying that we have no idea what it means or how it occurred, went through a variety of treatments that didn't work. And eventually my doctor said to me, I got some bad news. This is not getting better. Now this all took place over a period of maybe a month. Meanwhile, I was struggling to see, I could see and I could do it. I worked through loops like most of us do. And if I put on like my six times loops, by the time an hour or two went by, I was, I was dying. It was headaches. And finally, the doctor's like, it's curtains for you. You got it. This is over. So we kind of put the practice on the market. We had a buyer. And within a couple of weeks, it was instantly over. And I went now, did, from did you everything have, doing great to nothing. Did you have good disability insurance, I hope? I did. You know, it's funny. When I got out of school, I had a guy, this broker in this area named Don Stanley had come and said, you need to buy disability insurance. I'm like, yeah, right. And he goes, no, you need to buy this. And so I actually listened to him and did buy it. I bought Onoc, the cost of living rate. You know, who knows? I bought a great policy in hindsight. I didn't know. Paid for it on the personal side. Never pay for your disability insurance on the business side. It's a taxable event. Mm -hmm. And so now, thankfully, I have disability insurance. It doesn't cover my whole life. But because I was careful about putting money away and investing in and working with a financial advisor all these years, we're fine. So not, we're actually, I went to him and said, are we fine? And he said, yeah, you're fine. And so <laughs> at least I don't have that worry in my life that we're going to, you know, go bankrupt tomorrow. So that's, that's good. I would have liked to work till I was 60. That was always my goal to get everything in, in every duck in a row by 60, have my mortgage in and everything just be easy by 60. I made it to 51. So pretty close. Not bad. And that's why I think I'm back in dentistry with doing some coaching now because it was an involuntary end. And I don't think I was yeah, ready for it right. to end. I misspoke. You know, so I, I said voluntary. Oh, you're right. Yeah. It's involuntary. It's involuntary. Yeah. And so I went out, I was working with um, Serona and the others lecturing on behalf of CEREC, trying to spread the good word about CEREC all around the country, doing trainings and study clubs. And that was doing great. And then suddenly in March of 2020, COVID hit. Yep. All of a sudden, I had another involuntary end to, and then they, all the lectures, of course, were stopped instantly. And then I was like, okay, now I'm involuntarily retired again. And then I began working for a nationwide company called Accelerate My Practice in March of, no, in July of 2020. Worked for them for about a year, right in the middle of COVID, traveling every week. I traveled on a plane, stayed in hotels literally almost every week right through COVID. And I'm amazingly never got it. Who knows? I don't know how I avoided it. So anyway, then I that came to an end when travel started returning and travel got real. Travel's a pain in the butt right now. I don't know if you traveled recently. Mm -hmm. It was just getting to be too much. And as this coincided with the birth of my first grandchild, and I decided, okay, I'm done. I'm going to voluntarily retire this time. And we did. Unfortunately, a few dentists have called me and people said, hey, how about one client? How about just one? So that has expanded a little bit, but I've set a maximum for myself so that I can focus on the, you know, my grandkid and, and my house and other stuff. So I'm doing a little bit of it still, but this time kind of happily, at least semi-retired. Voluntarily. Well, let's t- let's talk a little bit about now because you because uh, to me we talked a little bit off off offline about some of the things that you had going and you have a real passion for I'll call it doing things the right way and I don't want I don't want that to sound arrogant but I I, I 
because I, I, I find myself aligned so much with you when I was listening to some of the points that you talked about. Talk a little bit about now the, this next step now, which is the coaching aspect. What are some of the things that when you go in and someone hires you, what are the, some of the things that you look for? Well, before somebody hires me, I do the looking. Um, What's that? Because mean? I am, when I do do coaching with an office, I'm careful about picking out people who are, that it's going to work for. I mean, that sounds silly, but I, I don't, I'm not in the job of saying, oh, we're hanging on by a thread, come save us. Yes. Or, or I'm a complete jerk and, uh, you know, make me less of a complete jerk. To me, it has to be people who have a willingness to learn, grow, a willingness to be wrong, a willingness to be poked a little bit. And it also is in the numbers. You have to look at the numbers. And I have a bunch of reports I'll run and see where opportunity lies. Is it in the period department? Is it in the doctor himself? Most of the time, it's the doctor. So let, me, so, let me, so let me ask you this before I'm, I'm, I hate to interrupt you, but <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'm sorry, but you That's said okay. we, we have to, we want, we want to look, what, what are some of the things you mean by looking? I mean, I know you're talking about the number that stuff. What, what, how do you determine the right, the right person? Let's say. Um, that's going to be, that's going to work out as a good office yeah. to do coaching with. Yeah. Uh, observation. So, my style is a little different than some others and that I like to observe the practice in its normal day, all day. So I will be there all day from before the morning huddle until after the last person leaves. And then sometimes even I go to dinner with the doctors. And so the day continues and watch what really happens on a day-to-day basis and make notes. In fact, I'll make notes on my phone. So it probably looks to people like I'm texting all day but I'm not, I'm making notes. And I'll be the lurky guy, like the creepy guy behind the wall that's eavesdropping when the hygienist talks to the patient or when the doctor talks to the patient or the front desk. And just make notes of where we can change our narratives, improve our narratives, where we can improve our systems, where are we inefficient, improve our flow. And I'll see if at the end of the day, my observed day or half day or whatever it's gonna be, I'll say, okay, do I have enough material here? Is there, is, there, is there coachability? I was at one office that I worked with in Albuquerque, and uh, I guess I won't say his name, but he was just not interested in growing. And it didn't work out. We had to unwork with that doctor. Uh, this is back when I was working for Accelerate My Practice. He just was not willing to learn, not willing to hear anything. Everybody else was wrong except for him. And it was an impossible situation and we had to literally remove ourselves from that situation. So I'm particularly careful about that kind of stuff now. So I, I'd say it's just a willingness to, to learn. I think it's the kind of person who, if I said, Hey, you know what? You should come to my Toastmasters group and, and maybe work on your speaking a little bit. That person might just say, yeah, I'd like to do that. You know, I'd like to better myself even though I'm already 45 and I'm kind of fully baked here, I want to reinvent myself a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I know that's not really a solid answer. I get it. And, and there has to be financial opportunity too, because they're going to have to pay for all this. So I have to look and see our, what are we doing all day? What procedures are we doing? What procedures are we not doing? Mm-hmm. What are patients saying yes to? And what are patients saying no to? What are we recommending? I want to look and see, I'll go back a few weeks and look at every single patient and review the x-rays and see what was treatment planned, what was said, and what was scheduled. I think I have a leg up because I'm actually a dentist. I can actually go in and look at x-rays and get them. And I can look at margins and say, why Why is this crown with a bad margin being left go? Mm-hmm. What was said about this? And I think that gives me a little bit more, it, it, it benefits me in two ways. One, I can pick it out, and two, because I have the degree, it kind of gives me the cred to pull the dentist aside and say, hey, dude, what's up with this? Whereas some dentists get a little bit of ego going and they don't want to listen to that. And I think having the degree allows me a little more, let's say, latitude 
was saying, hey, what's going on here? Why did we decide to leave this go? Is it, tell me what your thought process was here. And so I, I think that helps too. So you, it, that was a really muddy answer to a question. I don't have a specific answer, but also it's a feeling too. Do I have a feeling? What are the right. people like? You know, does it look like they're ready to learn? Or does it look like they're looking at me sideways? Do you go through some questions? Like, do you say, hey, fill this out? And then, you know, the, and then some conversations, social. I mean, because you're, you, it's, it's, it's relationships. Yeah. It's still relationships. Of course. It's more questions than answers for sure. I mean, if you want to learn something, you ask. You don't tell. So a lot of questions. My, my, co my previous coworker, uh, Barb, always said, start a sentence with I'm curious and go from there. And you could, you could say almost anything after I'm curious because it sounds like you're just, hey, I just want to, I just want to find out, talk to me. So it's a lot of questions. I also have the doctor fill out what I call staff bios. Tell me the greatest strength and greatest weakness of this person and that person. Mm -hmm. I have one doctor I'm working with now that bought the office from um, the previous doctor and inherited the entire staff who's been there for longer than he's been a dentist. And so we have to work on who's the leader here, who's in charge. Mm -hmm. So a, lo a lot of this stuff is, is question-based. I think it's also just looking at the office. Where does the patient go? Is there confusion? What does the patient do when he needs a treatment plan? What is the flow? What is said? Who's waiting? Why is that person scheduled for 10 and waiting there at 10.15? So a lot of it has to do with just this having an enormous amount of respect for our patients and the fact that they took off work or got a babysitter or whatever they did to get there. And what are we doing to, to show them how much we appreciate them being there? How, how are we dealing with that? Mm -hmm. I have some offices that run behind at all times. They're really just behind. And that, that's disrespectful. So why'd you do that? Why'd you run behind all day? Let's, let's figure out where the breakdown was. So a lot of it is custom. And that's why I only do a few offices. We were talking about this offline. I'm, this is not my job. I, I'm not here to say, hey, everybody call me. I don't want that. I, I'm doing this in addition to being a grandpa now and to doing things I really want to do. To me, it's more about, hey, let's pick out a few offices and really kill it on quality in those offices. And then the money will roll in afterwards. I think when we look at the money first and go, here's our production. Wow, we're really productive per hour on root canals. Let's do more root canals. To me, that's, that, that doesn't make any sense. That, that, that's just, I always say you can't grow a business by cutting its costs. Well, it's best. Hey, let's order cheaper cotton rolls. You know, it, it doesn't do anything. It saves you a couple of pennies. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so it, it's a big process. It takes half a day, sometimes a whole day. And everything has to be customized to that office. I know two offices will hear the same thing. I have one office right now and product increased production is not the goal. That is not the goal of coaching. The goal is reducing stress, increasing efficiency. Sounds crazy. Why would I go in and not increase how much money they make? Because I want, because this doctor just wants to enjoy life a little bit more on a day-to-day -day basis. There's my, now that's my goal. So it varies wildly. Mm -hmm. And you said you love systems. What are some of the things that you see? Because you're analyzing, you're listening, you said you're kind of the creepy guy around the corner. So what are some of the systems that you see are often the broken systems in the office? Start with whatever area you want to start with. All right, well, let's start with an easy one, front desk. Okay. The biggest breakdown is a lot of offices have multiple people sitting at a front desk of a dental office. Most offices I've seen have two, sometimes even three people that are tasked with being the front desk group. Does mm -hmm. that sound about right? Or Yeah, 100%. And what they do is the doctor says, hey, you guys are on the front desk, go do it. And I, one of the first things I'll do at the front desk is I'll sit down with each person and say, tell me what your job is. Well, I sometimes do eligibility and claims and then you know, answer the phone and they don't really know what their job is. Tell me, write down all the things you do all day. Write your own job description. And so one thing we'll do is we'll work with the front desk to, to what I call separation of duties. I call strict separation of duties. Let's separate it out. It's like a playground pick. Who's going to do insurance? I like insurance. Fine. That's you from now on. Who's going to do accounting? 
treatment planning, et cetera. And we separate it out and each person gets his or her own list. Now, once that person can master his or her own list, then we could cross train in case somebody's not there that day or whatever. But I'd like to get people to be really good at his or her own list. Recall systems are often broken. You can run a report, say, what percentage of our, or how many active patients do we have? The word active to me means a different in the last three years, or, or in some software like, uh, what's the uh, popular one? Oh, Eaglesoft. Active, the definition of an active patient means the checkbox of active is checked. That person could be dead, but still be an active patient. That doesn't make any sense. To me, an active patient is somebody who has been there, been there and is scheduled. That's active. The word at, Think about the word active, right? If they were there three years ago on a toothache and never came back, not active. So we have to work, we have to clean the database. Let's go through every patient who's considered active. Is this person coming back? How long has it been? And what were they here for last? And in that situation, let's send this email or let's send that text or let's leave this voicemail and get this database cleaned up so we have a group of patients who are truly active that we're focused on. So to me, that's a big front desk thing. Usually the database is a mess. If you can easily figure out how many patients your office can accommodate by taking the number of hygienists you have, the number of hours they do in a day, multiplying it out and going, look, we have this many cleanings a year and a portion of them are used for perio work. So here's how many people we can accommodate. If you have twice as many active patients as that number, something's wrong. So the front desk is easy to clean up. So now we're talking about areas of the office that we can improve. I think the front desk, we just separate out their duties and then everybody can have a goal and a list. Here's your list of duties. Now let's go through and give yourself a grade on each of these. How are you doing? A, B, C minus. And until we get to an A in all of them, we get some work to do. And that person is, per, is writing his or her own job description as we go too. So if that person leaves, we have a job description for the incoming person. Hygiene is a big one. Most hygienists want to be a really good hygienist. Would you agree with that? I would want to be good at it. Yes, yes. They want to do it right but we've gotten to the point where sometimes we really honestly do it wrong. We don't do periodontal probing annually. We don't make sure our bite wings aren't overlapped. We don't follow up. We don't mention, oh, it's just, they, you know, they usually have, you know, they're usually fine. It's just a five, just floss more. We don't really take the opportunities presented to us in hygiene and help patients. And I think of it this way. If you look at a patient who has severe periodontal disease, who's losing teeth, who might end up in a denture or partial, if you look at that patient, and let's say that patient in our made-up scenario is 60 years old, if that patient could wind back the clock to when she was 40, and somebody said to her, hey, you're getting some areas where you're getting some gum problems here, you got some infections, let's talk it over and figure out what we can do to help you. I guarantee you that person would wind back the clock and do it. They would say, I want to keep my teeth. But yet we see people that are at the beginning of that sequence, a 40-year-old, and we see some minor peri, and we go, well, you know, just floss more. Or, or just come in every three months. And we don't do what we need to do to stop the progress, uh, stop the disease process when it's mild. And when we do that, what we're doing is we're, we're allowing that person to be the 60-year-old with the denture. And to me, it's so important to stop disease. And we say we're doctors, you know, and a hygienist is like, I, in fact, I always said hygienists should be called doctor. I mean, they call it, you can get a master's degree in, in marriage and family therapy, and they call you a doctor. I think a hygienist truly is a doctor for, for their portion of dentistry. Whatever it is, they're a medical practitioner, let's say. And they should really be, treating that patient so the patient doesn't spin the drain you know there's more teeth loss to gum disease than there are cavities in the u.s mm -hmm. and yet we still don't always put a stop to it like i always had to think if a patient comes in for cleaning regular old cleaning and we do probing which we should do at least once a year and we are probing along and we're like three two three and we find an area that's bleeding and it's got some vibes we're like wow five six five here hey, bud, this area has an infection in it. You have a gum infection here. 
let's do this. I know we were scheduled for a cleaning today, but this takes precedence. Let's go ahead and numb this area, get it all cleaned out, put an antibiotic in there if that's what you like to do as a doctor. We used to use a lot of Arrestin method, was a good product. Put an antibiotic in there. Then I'll give you another appointment in about six weeks. We'll follow you up, see how you did, see if it's cleared up, and we'll do your cleaning at that time. We used to call it pivoting, which is like that Friends episode. We'd say pivot because we were changing what the patient felt like they came for. And we're telling them why. If we say, hey, let's do your cleaning now and get you back for scaling and replanning in that area, limited scaling and replanning, how does that emphasize the importance of it when we say, yeah, we don't know anything open for two months? The patient's sitting there today bringing you an active periodontal pocket. Let's fix it. So to me, that's being more of a that's being more of a healthcare practitioner and helping the patient have a better dental life, even if they don't know we are. Mm-hmm. That that that's something that I always like to to see the hygiene department pick up on. And they would come to me and go, hey, I wanna, I wanna swap the appointment out for limited scaling with two arresting. Uh, can I have, you know, do you want to take a look at it? Sure, I'll come over, verify the finding. Yeah, it looks like there is a six here, it's bleeding. I'm going to agree with what the hygienist said. Let's go ahead and do that. We'll take care of it. Let's get you a quick treatment plan and get you started right now. What, most patients are not going to say no thank you to that. It's an easy, it's more productive. It's better for them. Literally nobody loses, but yet it's not done in dental offices at all. Instead, we do what I call hero cleanings, bloody cleanings that we shouldn't be doing. So that's something that hygienists really need to look in the mirror and say, am I the best hygienist I can be? I, I earned the degree. Am I really doing it to the level of what I thought I was going to do when I stepped out of school? Or have I dumped it down? Then I'm just doing a cleaning because I don't feel like dealing with the insurance. And this patient is, is mean and he was already 10 minutes late and I got to get to lunch and I can't believe how much time I don't have. Are, are we allowing our own problems to get in the way of good health care? And so me, a lot of, a lot of us, Dennis and hygienists both, allow that to happen to us so that's something that needs to be cured and that can be rallied hey let's chat let's get it better let's fix it up so you know i I always meet some hygienists who are not like that they're killing it and they're an example of doing it right unfortunately there are some out there that probably have let it slip a little bit Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so the systems that we talked about, we talked about the front desk, we talked about hygiene. Let's talk a little bit about how about the doctor's treatment planning? How is that? Well, system? this is the biggest one of all. So coaching is 90% the doctor, although most doctors don't want it to be. They want everybody else to be the problem. Probably the treatment planning thing has more to do with who says it than what is said. I believe in whenever possible, I know this isn't always possible, And a lot of doctors cringe when I mention this. I believe whenever possible, the dentist should be the one doing the treatment plan. I truly believe that. I don't want a plumber to walk into my house because I have a leak and look at the the leaky area and go, okay, I figured out what's wrong here. Oh, okay, tell me about it. No, 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 I'm going to have Mary call you and she'll go over what's wrong. I don't want to do that. You're the plumber. Tell me about the plumbing. You're the car mechanic. Tell me about the tell me about the problem. And I believe in dentistry. We as dentists should talk about it. I think. So I don't think production is a very good indicator of how a practice is doing. Production is what we did yesterday or the day before or last week. I believe in what's on the schedule. And if the doctor is spending a lot of time putting stuff on the schedule, if I produce ten thousand dollars tomorrow, I need to put ten thousand more dollars on the schedule, or else I'm going to stay to decline. So I need to put more on than I take off, if that makes any sense. So I believe doctors should do their own treatment plans. I don't care if it's a sealant. And you walk in there and you sit down with mom and the 12-year-old and explain a sealant. That I've had so many of those little teeny treatment plans that you would doctors would go, I don't do that. My front desk does that. I have seen those turn into dad coming in for a $10,000 new smile. To me, it is about how much you care and how much of a relationship you're developing with that patient. That said, it also needs to be a lot of steps. Most treatment plans sound like this. Tell me if I'm wrong. Doctor walks in the room after the hygienist is done, which that's a whole separate thing. 
terrible time to do an exam is after the hygienist is done. I don't know if you agree with that or not. I believe in doing an exam in the middle of the appointment because then you have a reason to get out of there. But anyway, doctor comes in after the hygienist is done and says, hey, Joe, you need a crown. And Joe says, okay. Doctor says, yeah, it's uh, breaking, it's starting to crack. You need a crown. Joe says, okay, thanks, doc. You're okay, great to see you, Joe. I'll have Mary talk to you about the crown. Or worse yet, he says, well, how much is it, doc? Oh, well, I don't know. You know, it can vary uh, if you have insurance or I don't even know. I'll let Mary do that. Here's the thing. If you're a dentist and you own your own office and a patient asks you a question about how much something is and you say, I don't know, you sound dumb. Not a good answer. Yeah. You're expected to know. Now, if you don't know exactly, you might say, well, you know, typically like know your UCR. Like around here, a crown is usually about 1500 bucks is what I find. And by the time if you add a buildup and other stuff, maybe it gets up to, I don't know, $1,800, $1,900. Know that and say, well, typically it's about $1,800. I can have Mary go over with the specifics with you on that. That to me, at least is a legit answer. It's like the plumber again. How much is it to fix this? I have no idea. What? You're the plumber. Tell me what it costs. So anyway, I believe a doctor should sit down with a patient. And I know there's been some, there's some people out there that believe in talking in the operatory. I know there's a doctor, I can't remember his name. It's one of these high production guys. He has a, I can't remember. He believes that all treatment plans should be done in the operatory. I've taken the opposite approach. I think that it goes back to kind of your amygdala and you're, you're in this kind of fight or flight situation when you're in a dental operatory. There's drills and there's scary looking things on the table. And there's suction and there's, you know, I just want to get out of there. So I believe in taking the patient to a more comfortable room and saying, hey, let's talk about this. And I, mean, I have a specific five-step thing that I go through with my clients on what we need to talk about. What's step one, two, three, four, five for how we present this treatment. And only one of those steps is about the money. Okay. Most people, most people get in there and they go, Hey, uh, Oh, doctor, doctor says you need a crown. That's 1500. And they never got a chance to talk to the patient about the value of it or the benefits of it. Patient goes home and his wife says, oh, how was the dental office? 1500. Cause that's all they learned that day. So there's a lot to the art of treatment planning. I always believe in honoring your doctor-patient relationship by spending the appropriate amount of time yourself with patients. Most doctors say I'm too busy. And the reason they're too busy is because they're not making enough money. They're not, they're not making enough money. I got to get busy, busy, busy. Yeah, 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 right. Asses and sucks. Therefore, I need to drill more. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's right. what, right, that's I'd what you're talking about. I'd much rather talk to a patient about a big case. Right. That's what that's what you're old taught school that the schedule was. should be busy, busy, busy. Yeah, old, old well, and that's fine if that's the kind of dentist you want to be. If you just want to drill composites all day and single unit crowns, great. But if you want to spend time with patients and go over their full health, you find that your cases will change and you really be moving people more toward health by overhauling. Like, here's a great example. I know that we don't have much time left. I'll give you the best example ever. Okay. You have to ask yourself as a dentist, what quality level do you hold yourself to? For example, for us older guys, if you got a PFM back from the lab and it was high and you drilled it a little bit and it was still high and you took it down a little more, this is pre-cementation and it's still high and you took it down and then all of a sudden the metal poked through, would you cement it or would you do something different? You have to ask yourself that. If you're the doctor who says, I would just cement it then you're probably listening to the wrong podcast. If you're the doctor that says, well, I'm going to have to create a little, I'll have to reprep it, create a little more clearance, I'll have to spot the opposing, whatever it is that I have to do to make and get this PFM remade by the lab to get it right, then you're listening to the right podcast. But hold yourself, so you're holding yourself to this great standard. Let's say everybody listening says, yeah, I would never cement that. That's bogus. But then again, we look in somebody's mouth and there'll be a PFM that was put there 15 years ago. We drag our Explorer across it. It's like sandpaper. It's got metal showing. And what do we say to them? Well, that's still clinically acceptable. No, it's not. My way of doing dentistry is hold every tooth 
and every restoration that's ever been done, even by yourself, to that same standard of perfection. Now, patients may not want to get it done. That's a different story. But at least if you hold everything to that level of perfection, why would you put a perfect tooth on number 18 and leave a crappy one on number 30? That doesn't make sense. So if we hold everything to that same level. Hey, this composite is all brown around the edges. That's not the way it's supposed to look. If I had just put that composite in and it was brown around the edges, I'd take it back out and do something else. Hold your patient's treatment to that same standard. You will find that all of a sudden there's treatment just waiting for you to do. I don't consider it aggressive to try to take a crown that is no longer the way it should have been. It's lost its glaze long ago and put in a better one with a material that lasts longer, a zirconia or, or, or an Emacs or something that we know is going to behave better over the years. I consider that a good service. Is it already broken? Could it last? Sure. But I see it more like maintaining the mouth, changing the oil in the mouth, making it last longer, as opposed to waiting until the engine goes out and saying, oh no, now it really, now we got a big problem. Now you need a root canal or an implant or everything else. Remember that every patient who needed a root canal and crown, they didn't always need that. It got away from them. Every patient needs an implant unless it's trauma-based. Probably could have been fixed five years ago. Unfortunately, we all just waited a little too long. So, and we're guilty of that as dentists sometimes. We want to satisfy our patients. You'll be fine. Wait till next year or whatever. So right. hold yourself to that standard. Love it. Love it. I got to ask you a final question. I got about five minutes to, to, to wrap up. So I ask everybody first time on, you've heard it before. If you could go back anywhere, any place, time, where would you go and why? In my own life or anywhere in the world? Anywhere in the world, history, your life, anything. You want to be back, watch the signing of the end of Constitution, I, you know, you name it. Oh my gosh. Well, I would say in modern times, in modern times, I'd want to go back and probably go out to lunch with Steve Jobs and find out what was your magic? What, what do you have? You know, I've heard that he was a jerk and I've heard he was amazing, but I'd like to just find out what made him tick. So that's, that's my modern times answer. If I could go back to much, much longer ago, oh my gosh, I think I'd like to go back all the way to ancient Egypt and watch these guys figure out how to build the pyramids without computers, calculators, cranes, or anything else, and watch this amazing mathematical problem come to life and, and kind of learn from that. So the double answer there. It's great stuff. That's great stuff. I, I couldn't just, I couldn't disagree at all. I think those are great things. That's amazing. I mean, I, I've read a lot about Steve jobs and that, that, as quirky as he was, as, as was as genius as he was too, you know, just, you know. And we see, we see those once in a while. We have Elon Musk now. And, it, you know, it seems like every generation, somebody surfaces with this, these incredible thinkers. But what makes them tick? You yeah. have to love to kind of sit down for a couple hours in a closed room with nobody bothering you and saying, talk to me. Tell me about your magic here. Yeah. Let's have a bite to eat. Just sit down. Talk yeah. Let's get some dinner. <laughs> Well, thanks, Bob. I appreciate it. We're going to have you back if you don't mind. I would love to get more details on your front desk systems. Let's talk a little more about your hygiene systems and maybe we can get you to talk more about the treatment planning systems because I think we all can benefit from all that. As sure, I really appreciate it. I appreciate I, Nicole for, for, for putting us together. I've listened to your podcast for, for, for a long time, but I never thought I'd hear I'd be on it. You know, I always want to tell dentists, my final word to dentists is just do the right thing for your patients, for their health. You got a human being sitting there that got a babysitter or got off work or whatever they did to come see you. Right. Give them the best to yourself. Don't look at your watch and wonder how much time you have. Give them the best to yourself every single time. Your practice will go crazy if they really believe and, under, and if they believe that you're doing that, treat them from the heart. Yep. That, that sounds so cliche, but if you do that all day long, the day will just fly by and the production will just roll in. Right. And if, if you believe it, that's what, that's what people get. Those are the nonverbals. That's the, 
that's just coming out of your pores, you know, your DNA. And that's what people are ultimately checking on. I agree. Not everybody likes you. If, if you're not getting along, hey, you know what? It didn't work out. I'm going to switch you to another dentist. But for the people that you're getting along with, let's do the right thing for them. If they have a crappy old PFM that has the texture of sandpaper, give them a nice new crown that they can love and use for many years instead of waiting for it to fail catastrophically. Do these little things to help your patients inch along toward dental health. So it, to me, to me, that's, it's easy. Being a dentist is we, we're overpaid, we're underworked, and yet we complain all day long. It, it's just so easy to be successful in dentistry by just being a good, honest person and doing what's right for people all day long. Well, that's a perfect way to end it. Just do what's right so, all day long. Thanks, Bob. Well, let's stay in touch. Thank you very, very much. Pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Fee for Service Dentist Podcast. If you would like to share your fee-for-service story, please fill out our contact form at ffsdentistry.com. Also, be sure to join our fee-for-service dentistry Facebook group. For help starting your dental membership plan, visit dentalmembershipdirect.com and membershipmastercourse.com. Finally, for help with in-house financing, visit dentalfinancingdirect.com. And don't forget, your story is what you make of it. This is your name on the door and your reputation on the line. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.